Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, August the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, the Sunday edition, and this is John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for being along today. We've had a sort of busy week this week. We've gotten um, started on doing some work at the house that we've postponed for a while because we've been otherwise engaged, as you probably know, uh, many of you at least know that <clears throat> we've been engaged in some other stuff. We've, we've been kind of busy the last year and a half, and so uh, we put this off, and, and now we've got a, a good friend who's doing uh, a bunch of work at the house and trimming trees and all this other stuff, and, and we're feeling like I, we don't know what's next. So we're, we're sort of preparing to move. Uh, we don't need you know, 3,800 square feet of house uh, for just me and Suzanne. And so we had been thinking about that for a long time. We just don't know where we're going to go. We don't know if we're going to stay in Asheville, go somewhere else, whatever. But we got over COVID, so that was good. We, it was, we had very mild cases. It was a um, little less, almost for me at least, it was a little less than even a summer cold would have been. It, it just had almost no effect at all. Um, had weird symptoms from time to time is the only reason I even tested. But anyway, we're through it. It's fine. Um, no big deal. Got back in the gym this week, felt good, worked out heavy and strong and hard. So it was all good. No problems. Um, but anyway, so we're, we're, you know, kind of in this holding pattern, but at the same time we're moving forward, uh, in the holding pattern because we believe that God's calling us to, to move on and go somewhere else. We just don't know where or to do what. So we're, we're, and keep us in your prayers that that the Lord would show us where He wants us to be and what He wants us to do, because um, we're willing to do anything and go anywhere. It's this not there's nothing in reserve. There's nothing in in us that's saying you know hey I won't do this I won't do that. There are things I'd prefer not to do. Certainly, um, I prefer not to lead a church again. So <laughs> that's not my thing. I really like teaching and preaching, but the the other part of it, not really my bailiwick, to be honest with you. Um, so anyway, we're, we're just trying to see where God wants us to be and what he wants us to do, and, and we're happy to do whatever that is. So anyway, that's, that's kind of been our week this week. We've, we've gotten back out and done all the things we wanted to do, back out walking and being out in the woods and all that kind of stuff, hanging out with friends, seeing people and all that. So anyway, looking forward to uh, the next season. Um, and when I say season, I mean like to get out of summer because summer's not my favorite time of year. I don't like the heat very well. Not likely to live full time in, in a place that's hot, not unless God absolutely makes it clear that's where he wants me to be. But, and if he does, then we will. And just figure out how to deal with it. So anyway, today what we're going to talk about primarily is going to be about faith. We're going to look at Genesis 15, 1 to 6, and then in Hebrew, uh, well, in the gospel, we'll be in Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 40, and then in the book of uh, Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 8 to 16, and, and Hebrews 11 is sort of the, the faith hall of fame. So everything today is, is going to have to do with faith, and it's going to have to do with what do we believe, and how does what we believe shape our lives? What would it look like if we lived completely by faith, the way that Jesus calls us to do? Um, <laughs> he says with, you know, it's true. And we we just, I think, have cheapened 
the use of the word faith. I think we've cheapened it to mean basically that I made a profession of faith and confessed that I believe that Jesus is Lord, was resurrected from the dead, um, and, and will ultimately return in judgment, and that if I believe in him, then I'll have eternal life. Well, that, that's the beginning. <laughs> that is absolutely the beginning, but it is not the end. Life begins at that moment. A new kind of life is intended to begin at the moment you believe that. It's intended to change your life in every single way. It, it's intended to transform us. We, we have been conformed to a certain sort of life prior to that. It's whatever the world told us we needed to be, and then God calls us to a new form of life, a, a life that will show forth his glory, a life that will reveal him in us, and that's intended to be a life of faith. And so we're called to that, and yet I think too often we don't make the call as plain as Jesus did or as Paul did. And so we, we, we've made too much of some things and too little of other things. And I think we have to be on guard against that because I don't, I'm positive we don't want to lead people down a road where they believe that, well, I made a profession of faith one day and, and I got baptized right after that and therefore I'm good to go. I don't think we can count on that. I don't. I think that it requires a changed life. That's the intention. So in Genesis, what we see, I mean, so we're picking up a story at some ways. We're picking up a story in midstream because anytime a, a, a lesson begins with these words, after these things, it, it seems to me to beg the question of well, what are those things? So this lesson in, in Genesis 15 begins with after these things. So what are the things? Well, what it is, is is that there was a battle among some kings. So this is in chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And they joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So we're talking about little bitty fiefdoms, by the way. We're talking cities. These people are, are kings of cities. They're not kings of large pieces of ground. You know, today they'd be mayors, except for they had more power than a mayor does, and they weren't elected. So what happened is, is they went out, and, and there was a problem. The enemy took possession of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went away, and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, dwelling in Sodom in his possessions, and they went their own way. So then what happened? Somebody came and told Abraham, who at that time still known as Abram, that his nephew had been taken captive. So he took 318 trained men of his house, and he went out and went against those kings, and then he won. He defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, and he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abraham has just conducted a rescue mission to bring back his, his uh, nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. And so he has gone out with 318 men and has defeated these four kings. So then he, he comes back, and that's after these things. So, okay, so those are those things. So the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Now, he's been in this place about 10 years at this point. He has been down here around the Oaks of Mamre for about 10 years at this point. So the word comes and says, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So what does it mean that God is Abram's shield? Well, it means that he says protection. It means he doesn't need to worry. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. You don't have anything to be concerned about in these kind of situations. And and the Jews will say that, that Abraham was actually concerned that he had killed people, and therefore that, that was what he was concerned about, and that's why God came to him and spoke to him in this. And your reward will be very great. There's not going to be punishment for that. It's going to be a reward because you did the right thing. You went and rescued Lot. So who knows? But anyway, I'm your shield, and your reward shall be very great. What, what a wonderful thing, right? I mean, what a great thing to hear from the Lord. But Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. No, I'm sorry, I missed part there. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then he said also, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God says, I'm your shield, and your reward will be very great. And Abram kind of goes, great, wonderful. It's nice, you know, but you still haven't fulfilled the promise that you gave me before for offspring. So it doesn't, at some level, it just doesn't matter to me because I've got an heir in my house is going to be Eliezer of Damascus, and basically we're going to adopt him so that he'll take care of us, and so somebody's got to get this stuff. He's not even going to give it to Lot, which I think is a little bit interesting. But anyway, he's going to give it to Eliezer. Damascus is going to inherit everything I've got, and that's fine. He's nice. He's a big help, but you've given me no offspring like you promised you would. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, how do we know that he believed the Lord? (laughs) I mean, it's a very difficult thing to know, except the Lord knows. The Lord knows that he believed. He knew that he accepted that with all his heart. He knew that Abram didn't doubt that that would be the case. Now, we also know what happens in the next chapter, and that's when Sarah says to uh, Abram, hey, you know, it's been a while. God made this promise. Did he say that I was going to be the mother? So we're still childless. So you take my maid, Hagar, and you have a child. And so he proves that it's not him because he fathers a child by Hagar, and we know that child is Ishmael, who are the father of the Ishmaelites, who are the people of Islam. So anyway, that, that we know. So Abraham believed that he would have offspring, even though he was way too old to even think about being able to have children. So we, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Well, what did it mean that he believed, and what does it mean that he was counted to him as righteousness? So what it means is, is that he, he continued to persevere in his life with 100% faith. Now, he's going to test that faith. In Genesis 22, when he tells him to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, and take him up to the mountain, he'll show him and sacrifice him to him there. And Abraham believes, 
I don't know how this is going to end, but I all, but I do believe that Isaac, the son that I had with Sarah, is going to be the inheritor of everything. And I believe that even if I sacrifice him to the Lord, somehow it's going to work itself out. And and that is an important thing. That faith was tested, and therefore it was proven. God knew that it was real. He knew it was real in the beginning. He knew it was real this day. It was counted to him as righteousness because he believed. This is before circumcision. This is before anything is asked of Abraham at all. But you can see, after this period of time, Abraham's questioning the value of everything. Nothing truly means anything to him, even saying that, that I'm your shield and your war- reward is very great. Because he, he's got all the other things. He's in the land. He doesn't possess the land. But he's there, and he's become a very wealthy man. So his name is great because he's wealthy and also because he's just gone and defeated multiple kings in order to rescue his nephew Lot. So his name is great in every way that it can be great. And yet, his name won't persevere beyond him because it will die if he doesn't have children. So his name being great in his lifetime is not something that matters to Abraham very much, and that's the reason his reaction to God saying that I'm your shield and your reward will be very great is basically big deal. If there's nobody to follow, if my name doesn't continue into the next generation, then it doesn't really matter, does it? And so he, he's unimpressed by worldly things and worldly promises. Because what he really wants is a name that will persevere and last beyond him. And he needs a child of his own in order for that to happen. And so so he's looking for the future. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us. Now, he's told you're going to have a, a huge number of offspring where he only ever has one. But here's the thing about Judaism and um, end-time stuff. So what they believe is, is that those in the land— at the time of their death, those who are buried in the land, will be the first ones resurrected. And then those Jews who are around the world will be resurrected, but in a very different way. They'll come back, and they'll come through subterranean tunnels, and they will roll. And that's punishment. It's their penance for having left the land. And so they will roll to the land of Israel, and there they'll be resurrected. And then after all the Jews are resurrected, then Abraham and Sarah will be resurrected so that they can see the fullness of God's promise fulfilled. And I think that's a beautiful story. I think they they only get a small portion of it because the Revelation tells us to be 144,000 Jews. That's not a real number, by the way. It's, 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 It's a big number. But there will be multitudes of others, and then we also, we Gentiles, will be children of Abraham as well, and he will rejoice. And so he will rejoice at much more than even they can imagine. And so Abraham was looking for this this day, and he didn't consider earthly things to be much value to him. And that's what he tells the Lord here. And so in the gospel lesson today, Jesus begins with the same words that God begins with Abraham, fear not. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fantastic, right? I mean, how else can you respond to that. And then he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What does that have to do with that? Well, he's going to tell you. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He tells everybody, fear not, little flock. Sell your possessions, give it to the poor. You know, I liked it better when it was only the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus told him that he had to sell everything he owned and gave it to the poor. I felt a lot better about it then. I, I, I was off the hook. No. Jesus says, this is the way you're supposed to live. The, your father's giving you the kingdom, but how do you get the kingdom? Well, you, you, you give up your kingdom. You count your life as, as worth nothing, and you, you're, you've got to be willing to get rid of it. If you want the kingdom, so do you want the kingdom? How much do you want the kingdom? So it, it starts off great and then immediately turns in a direction that nobody saw coming, right? Your father's going to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old and a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a serious admonition. That, that will get your attention. It better get our attention because it's actually the way we're intended to live. We're intended to live that way because that's exactly the way Jesus lived. He didn't live for this earthly kingdom. that Satan offered him all the earthly kingdoms. If he would bow down and worship him, Jesus says, no, you worship only the Lord your God. He's going to receive those kingdoms from the Father, but only, only if he turns them down now in this life. We know that ultimately he will rule over all and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He comes in when he rides in on the horse There's a sash that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything is subjected to him, but only because he understood how to live this life. He understood that we're just passing through. We're just passing through. This is for a time. That's eternity. But he understood, and he calls his people to live in the same way. That, that we're to understand that there is an eternal kingdom and we can participate in it. But the, one of the ways in which we have to act is to be willing to give away everything and walk away in order to have that kingdom. You know, it, it's like the old game shows, right, where you say, okay, you've won some nice things so far, but let me give you another option. You can trade in everything you have for door number two. And then the decision has to be made, do I want to give this up for that, which is unknown. The kingdom of God is not unknown. We know exactly what it is. It's eternal life in God's presence, in a place where there's no more sorrow or sighing or dying or pain or sin, none of that. We can't even begin to imagine how wonderful that is. I mean, we can know that it's wonderful. But we have absolutely no analog for understanding how wonderful, because we only know this world, and we love it so much, even though it's filled with sin, sorrow, dying, pain, crying, all that stuff, we love this so much that it's hard for us to make the decision to give this up in order to get that. What we want is, I'd like to have both these things. Jesus says you can't. It's not possible. Nope. I'm calling everybody. To give up this. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at all at once when he comes and knocks. 
So be like those people. Just just put aside everything else. Tune your ear to hear that knock of the door. Let everything else go. There's only one thing that's important, and that is the knock of the master when he returns. Be like those guys, he says. Bless, and we and they don't know with a wedding feast. I mean, here and now, you can say, well, okay, so the wedding is at 7. The reception will probably start about 7.30 for most people, and the pictures will take a, a little while longer, and so we'll have to wait a little bit for the bride and groom to come. And when the bride and groom come, then then we can begin to eat. The banquet, the feast will begin, and then there'll be some time there, and they'll probably do a dance, you know, and, and then probably they'll cut the cake, and then so we'll have some cake, and we'll be home. So let's say the wedding starts at 7, so probably, let's call it 10 o'clock at the latest. That's not how it worked. <laughs> you were summoned to the feast, and then the feast could take quite a long time because it wouldn't be ready when you got there. You got there just before everything was ready. And so you didn't know when the master would return. And here, that's exactly the situation Jesus speaks of. And he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them because of their faithfulness. Because they laid aside the the concerns of everything else, including the concern for their own bodies their own rest, their own whatever, in order to serve him, and now he will serve them. And that's exactly what Jesus does in John 13 at the Last Supper. He serves the disciples. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be those faithful watchmen. He says if he comes in the second watch, which is 9 to midnight, or in the third, midnight to 3 a.m., and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you don't expect. So, I mean, it, it's the it, it's the two words that I would always it's a Boy Scout motto, but it's the two scout two word um, admonition I would give every year at Advent. Because Advent just it, the the whole point of Advent is to say be prepared, be prepared for the coming of God. How do we prepare ourselves? We prepare ourselves by knowing the Word of God. We prepare ourselves by worshiping. We prepare ourselves by prayer. And we prepare ourselves by evangelism. And so we, we keep ourselves focused on the main thing. We, we understand, and we're supposed to at least, how to keep the main thing the main thing. And not allow those secondary things to overwhelm us. And so we're called to keep the main thing the main thing, no matter what it takes to keep the main thing the main thing. We can't let secondary things become main things. And secondary things include everything else. Literally, everything else. Because the way we handle everything else shows us what we truly value. It also shows us that we believe the kingdom is real. That we believe Jesus is coming back. And that judgment will follow in that. And that's exactly the way we're supposed to live. As though we truly believe those things. And Jesus says, you don't know when that's going to happen, so you should be prepared all the time. Don't take days off from the kingdom. Don't take days off from pursuing the kingdom. No, pursue it with all your heart. And if anything else gets in the way, it's got to go. Nothing can own your attention or your allegiance. You can't have treasure on earth and in heaven, is what he's saying. Because it becomes an idol. Anything that, that takes you away from the worship of God, the love of God, the understanding of God, and the knowledge of God is an idol. That's exactly what Jesus says. He makes this about as simple as you can possibly make it. 
And yet we live in a very different way most of the time. And we allow all those other things to overwhelm us and take away our attention from him. We, we shouldn't do that. Your soul is at stake. My soul is at stake. In the Hebrews passage, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What does that mean? The assurance of things hoped for. That means that I stand strong in what I know. I know that God wants to give us the kingdom. That's the place where I exercise my faith. It is in looking for the kingdom and believing for the kingdom. It's the reason that that we handled and are still handling, obviously, Will's death the way we do. I am perfectly certain that he's with Jesus. Now, I'm certain because of faith. But that faith isn't just free-floating stuff. It's based in what I know. It's based in the truth, the physical truth, of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's based in the truth of not only his death on the cross, but what that meant, what it means today. It's based completely in him. Do I think Will was good enough to get into the kingdom of God? I have no earthly idea. The answer, I believe, is no, because I don't believe I am either. I'm positive, in fact, that I'm not. And so, but I believe Jesus is. And it's his words that give me faith and assurance, but his words are backed up by his resurrection. Those are facts. They're not things that John believes against fact. They're things that happened. These are facts. And the interpretation was given by the one who was resurrected. So, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What do I hope for? I hope for eternal life. I hope for it for my my wife, for my sons, for me, for my friends, for the people that I care about. But I know that Will has that because he said he wanted to be a man of faith. And so I know then that he possesses that thing that I hoped he would have. So the writer is very clear that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, that that I know these things. I don't stand in doubt, and I don't wonder about these things. He said it's the conviction, which is the same kind of word, of things not seen. So I I stand in, in faith in that which I know, that which is confirmed by facts on the ground. But then there's also this other thing about things I don't see, which is the kingdom of God. I, I, I believe in those things because the same one who gave me the assurance of the things I hope for is the one who also tells me about those unseen things. And so because I trust him there, then I have conviction over what I've not seen. He says, for by it, it being faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made was not made out of things that are visible. So he didn't, there weren't materials there already, and then he began to work with those things and, and, and made this new thing out of it. No, he spoke those things into being. There wasn't some preexistent stuff that he reassembled. No, he spoke it into being. And he says, we, by faith, we understand that to be true. That does require faith. It requires faith, but, but that faith is faith that's engendered by facts on the ground. 
So I know these things to be true, and therefore the one who speaks those things is true. And therefore what he says is true. And so then he goes on from there, from that general statement that begins with creation, and now he gets this up to Abraham. He's gone through Noah before this and some others. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So by faith, Abraham obeyed. There was actual tangible evidence of his faith. When God said go, he went because God said so and because God promised him something when he got there. He said, then he went out, not knowing where he was going, because God says, I'm going to take you to a place that I will show you. I feel like I'm in that same place right now, that I'm waiting for God to show me the place he wants me to go. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. In other words, he didn't own anything there. He lived like a nomad in in the place that was the land of the promise. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he went there believing, looking forward to the city that has foundations, unlike a tent which has no foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. If she hadn't believed, is what he's suggesting, she couldn't have received the power to conceive. Same with Mary. Right? I mean, Mary is told, you're going to have this child. And she said, how can such things be, seeing that I'm a virgin? I understand enough biology to know that. But, but she says, be it done to me according to your will. In other words, I trust you and I believe that you can do this, even though I don't understand it. Because what he says is, you're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, whatever. i got no earthly idea what that looks like, but okay, be it done to me according to your will. I trust you. I trust you that you have the power and the ability to do what you just said, whatever that means. So he, she, Sarah, received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. He had been faithful to the other promises he had made. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, he's 99, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And, and in, in summary, he says, these all died in faith, not about those um, descendants, but about Abraham, Abram and Sarah and all the others. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised. He didn't have the promised land. The only piece of land that, that Abraham had in the promised land was the tomb that he purchased in the cave of Machpelah that he purchased in order to bury Sarah. That was it. Sarah didn't see that because, well, she was dead. So, but, but he got all that, but, but he saw one child and believed that that meant that the rest would come. I'll never see him in my eyes, but, but, but I believe that my descendants will be countless in that way. And I believe they'll, pro- they'll, they'll have this land of promise. But, so they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar by faith. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And so what he's, what he's suggesting there is, is that, that they didn't pass through this cursing God because they didn't receive the fullness of the promise in their lifetimes. They recognized that the fulfillment of those promises awaited the future, but they knew they would ultimately come. He says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. 
if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. So Abraham recognized, you can't go home again, home back to Haran. I can't go back there. Nope. I've cast my lot in with, Lot being his nephew, but I didn't mean it that way. I've cast in my lot with the Lord, and I trust him for these things, even though I don't have a settled lifestyle in the land of the promise, and I'm not surrounded by generations and generations of my own children and grandchildren. He said, I didn't want to go back to that. He understood that he'd been taken out of that and brought into God's kingdom in a new way. And so his life was no longer his own. The values that he had before of a settled existence where he had great wealth and he could just relax, those weren't his. He never had the time to do that. They were moving from here to there, depending on famine, depending on pasture land and all that. He didn't settle anywhere for very long. And so here, though, that, that says something wonderful about him, that they didn't settle down. They were always on the move. Wherever God went, they went. But as it is, he said, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They know that this life is not all there is. They know that ultimately the, the fullness of the promise really does await the coming age. You're never going to possess everything you want in this life. How would it be if God gave you only a portion of what it is you're believing for? Would you be okay with that? Or would your dreams and your hopes keep you from rejoicing? Would it keep you from believing in him? What if it never came through? The things you hope for, the things you dream for in this life, what if those things never came true and you never saw the fulfillment of a single bit of it? Would you still believe? That's a key to how we hold things in our lives. Are we willing and able to give them to God if that's what's required, to give up everything we have, everything we hope for, if he says that's what's required? Are we willing to be like Abraham, who possessed the son of the promise, but who was willing to sacrifice him to God because he believed that that was the right thing to do, because God said so? Are we willing to lay down whatever our hopes are or whatever it is we possess, our children, our our spouses, our homes, whatever, if God required it, how would we deal with that loss? How would we deal with that disappointment? He said, that shows that you desire a better country that is a heavenly one. He said, therefore, let not, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's prepared that for you. Is that your primary hope? Is that the thing that drives you all day long? You can tell pretty easily by the way you spend your time. If you're not in his word, if you're not worshiping, if you're not around his people, chances are pretty good that what you're working for isn't the right thing. 